Good morning, church. How are you this morning? I want to make sure I don't knock this thing off. In case you didn't know, Kevin made this. Pretty impressive. That's beautiful, right? It's gorgeous. So we don't have name tags this morning, um, but the name tag question uh, was going to be, what is your favorite romantic movie? So I'm going to give you just like 10 seconds here uh, to talk amongst yourselves and figure out, turn to your neighbor and tell them what your favorite romantic movie is. And if it's, look, oh, Reggie, Reggie, Reggie says not Titanic because they both could have stayed on that door. I mean, that's fair. That's fair. You know, I understand that. But did anyone get the answer right? The, the right answer, of course, is uh, Princess Bride, right? Princess Bride? Yep. Uh-huh. Yep. Boo. Man, well, let me tell you what my, uh, what my least favorite movies, uh, uh, romantic movie is. Um, they're all the same, um, but it's Hallmark movies. Am I, am I wrong? Okay, so I, I, don't, not, I was going to be invited out to lunch by people, but not after that. Um, if you look at the Hallmark movies, they're really interesting. I've seen 173,000 of them. Um, <laughs> Listen, y'all, I looked up how many Hallmark movies there are, and, and they've made 535 Hallmark movies. 535. They have three plot lines in 535 movies. Every Hallmark movie, it starts out exactly the same. You've got this, this beautiful girl that was raised in a small town, and she goes to the big town, and she gets this high-powered job, and then she has to go back to, to Christmaslandville or... Pumpkin Lane, and she goes back, and, and because she has to do something in real estate or photography or something like that, and then while she's there, um, she meets the, the grumpy but super handsome guy that's there, and they have this, this love-hate relationship, and maybe they were boyfriend and girlfriend in high school, you never know, but they, there's always that one point in the movie where they, they come like in the middle of the movie, it's at the 42-minute mark, I think. Um, <laughs> where you see there's a little montage that plays, right? They're painting a house or they're decorating the festival and then they, you can see they're like, they're, they're falling in love. You can just tell, right? You know it. And then, and then you can't keep going with it though because there's got to be the problem, this big problem that happens. And normally it's something major like, you know, she stubbed her toe and he didn't say thank you. I mean, it's a big problem. And they somehow magically get through this, prob this problem together. And then at the end of this situation, how does every Hallmark movie end? They get married. They get married. Well, we don't, we don't see the marriage. We just see the kiss, right? They get together and I've always loved you. I've always loved you. It's perfect. It's awesome. It's wonderful. And I'm, I guess I'm moving from the big city to come and, and live here or you're moving to the big city. I don't know. But then the kiss and then end credits, right? End scene. That's it. That's every Hallmark movie. You don't have to watch them now because you've seen them all. Um, you know, the problem with Hallmark movies is, is this. Like, they never keep going past that kiss. They never keep going past that, that one perfect moment in those people's lives, they haven't talked about, gosh, where are we going to live? 
uh, what do you think about having kids? Who's, one of us has to quit our job. How are we going to support our family now? What, 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 they, don't go, they don't go beyond that. They never show this, this part of life where the business partner has just totally messed over the woman and her life is in shambles now. They never show about when the guy has a midlife crisis and he goes out and he has an affair. And how do, how do you heal from that? They never talk about any of the stuff that we deal with in life. So it's this perfect vision of a life that we all want to have and we want to curl up on our couch and get our fuzzy blanket and, and have a little mug of hot cocoa and watch a little bit of hour and a half of happiness, right? If we look at Malachi, we see a group of people here that were faced with um, real life problems and did not know what to do, didn't know how to handle them. So turn with me to Malachi chapter 2 as we're continuing on in Malachi. Um, we'll find, I've got a, a pretty bad ring, Reg, huh? Yeah. Um, the, uh, if we follow on in Malachi, we've looked at um, what God has said to the people through this prophet we call Malachi um, and how he wants his covenant people to live in light of the covenant that God has with them in order for them to be able to step into the life that God has called them to. Last week, we talked about worship and what it means to be true worshipers um, in spirit and in truth. And today, we get to a portion of scripture that, um, if I'm being honest with you, I'm pretty nervous about um, because it deals with some some hot topics in, in society and the world today. It deals with some real challenges, and I'm hoping that we can come out of this morning with a picture of how God is calling us to live as his gospel-called covenant community together in life, um, in our marriages, and in, in our relationships every day as we walk through. So turn with me to Malachi chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 10 here. Verse 10 says, don't all of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? Why then do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? So this is the first of three faithlessnesses that we will see. That's not a word. I made it up, but it sounds good. So three, the, the Hebrew word here is bagad. It's B-A-G-A-D. And you'll see this if you read Hebrew, which I don't, but you would see this multiple times through this passage. Every time that it's talking about Bagad, it's talking about something that is treacherous or faithless or you have, you have gone against what should, you should do in order to, to be able to gain something for yourself. It's a treachery. So this first faithlessness is that the people of Israel were, were not being faithful to each other and the relationships that they had. We don't really know exactly what he's talking about here, what they were doing, but we can kind of infer that probably they were taking advantage of each other um, with their business relationships, with their interpersonal relationships. But basically what he's saying here is that um, you guys are, are not being right to each other. The way you're acting to each other is not okay. And he, he says here in verse 10, don't all of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? So what is he doing? He's establishing here this groundwork, this framework of how we should look at each other in life, especially for those in the covenant community of Israel at the time, but it works for us as well. So the first thing he says is this, that you are, don't we all have one father? 
He's establishing that these people in Israel are joint heirs and they have a shared creator. One of you is not better than the other one. One of you is not a higher level. We all have the same, we all have the same God. We all have the same father. Today, you might say, don't we all put our pants on one leg at a time? We're all the same. We're all, we're all born. We're all going to die. We're all on the same level. And we, we should respect and honor that, not think of ourselves better than others because we have this shared humanity together. And then the second thing that he says is this, that did, didn't one God create us? We're all children of God. So then why then do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? So it, this is the first time in this passage that we see this word covenant, and it's going to come up a lot today. So we probably need to break down what, what is a covenant. It's not really a, a word that we use very often anymore. Um, we, may, we like to use legal terms in life now, so we, we, get, in, we get into a, a legal agreement with somebody, um, but that's not really the same as a covenant. So what is this covenant that he's talking about? There's, there's a bunch of covenants that God made with with the people of Israel in the Old Testament. He kind of started out in, he started in, uh, in Genesis, but um, one of the first major ones that we know is the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, that's where God came to Abraham and said, I'm gonna make a great people out of you. Um, more likely the covenant that they're talking about here is the Mosaic covenant. And what that's found in Exodus chapter 19 and, and thereafter, and it goes on through uh, Leviticus and all that stuff you don't wanna read in your in your yearly Bible reading plan, and you're like, skim, 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 skim. That's all the covenant that God has established with the people of Israel. So in, in Exodus, Moses and the people of Israel <clears throat> had just escaped from Egypt, and they, had, they came upon this, the mountain, and Moses went up um, to the mountain with God, and he got these Ten Commandments, which you probably learned about in, in Sunday school or whatever. Um, but there was this long series of, of laws and regulations that he set out for how we should deal with each other, how, how Israel should live with regards to everyone else in their lives. They were pretty specific. They had a lot of different things that they talked about, but they established kind of the working order of this environment. There's some important things to know about a covenant. First of all, it was formed by God. Um, these were not people, this was not something where the Israelites were in the desert and they were like, hey God, can we have a covenant? This was instituted and established by God for the people of Israel to be his people. The second thing is that it was by God's grace. It wasn't that there was anything special about the people of Israel, but because of his grace, he called the people out to be his own. So it was formed by God, it was by the grace of God, and then thirdly, it was for the glory of God. So yes, it was for the people of Israel, but more importantly, the, the purpose of the covenant was to establish the goodness and the greatness of God among the people that Israel was going to come in contact with. And several times you see throughout scripture that God says, hey, look, you're going to go into this land and you're going to take it. And they're not going to say, how great is Israel? What are they going to say? How great is Israel's God? So it was established by God and for God. We're just recipients in the glory of the covenant that God has made. And the fourth thing is really that it, we, they were to become a witness for God to the world. It was for the glory of God so that the world would see God through the people of Israel. That's a beautiful thing if you think about it. We read through the Old Testament, we read these rules, and it's like, 
well, a lot of these just don't make any sense. I mean, why would you do this? But they were to set these people apart to be different, to be a people of God, so that when people came in contact with them, they knew this is just not like everybody else. These people are not just like everybody else, and their God is not like our God. Throughout the Old Testament, you'll see over and over and over stories of these pagan people that would come in and say, we've got a good God, and then God would be like, oh yeah, watch this, boom, fire burns up the altar, and everything is just, wow, oh man. The people of Israel existed to be God's messengers on earth and to be used by God to show his goodness and his glory to the people around him. So when God says, hey, the way that you're acting is profaning the covenant that I have with you, that's a big deal. Because what he's saying is, you're not representing me anymore. You're representing yourself. It's a big, big deal. As we move on to this second offense here, look in verse 11 of of Malachi chapter 2. It says, Judah has acted treacherously, and a detestable act has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem for Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary. That word sanctuary there is actually holiness. So he's saying that they have profaned the Lord's holiness, which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, whoever he may be, even if he presents an offering to the Lord of armies. Wow, that's another, another big step outside of the covenant relationship that God had with Israel. Israel's people were going and saying, you know what? That, that woman, she, she looks great, and, and her dad can get me this great, uh, this great opportunity for trading. Um, this would be much more beneficial if I would just, just step outside of this covenant here to be married to someone whose God is not my God. Well, I mean, what's the big deal, right? It's just, I mean, it's just a, it's just a, a marriage. But God says, whoa, hold on, it's a big deal. It's a big deal because I set you apart. In Exodus, you'll find um, many times that God says, hey, don't, don't have anything to do with those people. In fact, he commands them, like, get rid of them. In, you, know, that they don't, you don't need to be around them because he says that if you don't do that, then you're going to end up worshiping their gods as well. It's a major deal. It seems like, well, okay, I don't really understand. And especially in today's world, we have this, this thing like, well, you know, whoever you marry, it's whoever you love. And God says, look, this is an important thing for his people to stay within the covenant relationship that I have established with you as people of God. And it does make sense if you think about it because for Israel and for us who are believers, the single most important thing in our, in our life should be what? You can talk, it's okay. What should be the most important thing in our lives? God, right? So if you are engaging in a relationship with someone whose most important thing is not God, what does that mean for us as, as believers? We, we are sh- we're missing out on the single most important thing that we can share to walk forward through. The, the, our values, our actions are determined by what we say is important in our lives. So if we say God is the most important thing, that naturally our values in life will flow out of that most important thing in our life. So if we are sharing different important things, our values and our lives are going to be flowing in different directions. 
For the people of Israel, this was a major deal because God had set them apart. In Genesis, I mean, I'm sorry, in Exodus, he specifically says, do not do this. Don't do it. Israel was set apart to be a people of God alone, and they were abandoning their covenant for their own desires. They were asking the question, is God enough? And answering no. Is God alone enough? Nope, I also need this over here. What does that, what does that mean for us in modern day America? Um, well, first of all, if you are married, um, then you should share that as your first and primary most important thing and celebrate that. If that's where you are, if you are, if you are married to someone who is a believer, Praise the Lord. What an incredible opportunity to share the most important thing in life and make that the center of your relationship. If you are married to someone who's a non-believer, um, well, you, you might think that that should mean, well, we should separate because we just don't share it. But First Peter actually is very clear on that, that we, if we are married to a non-believer, we are to be the gospel to them every day so that they see in us the beauty of who God is and that they can be one to the Lord. What could be greater if you are married to someone who is not a believer than one day them coming alongside you and saying, I've watched the way that you lived and you're different. You're just different. I see something in you that's different and I wanna be like that. I wanna know the God that you serve so that you can become, so I can become like you. So I just wanna be like that. Can you imagine anything else that could be better if you're married to a non-believer? Can you imagine that? What a day of rejoicing and celebration if you can come together and be able to celebrate that because of God's work in my life, my spouse came to know God. What an incredible, incredible honor. And what if you're not married? What if you're single, you're dating, and, and you get on whatever the dating app is now? I've been married forever, so I don't really know what they are anymore, but um, I haven't been married forever. Um, but we, um, if you're on there and you're looking at relationships and you're starting to date, make that a central part of who you're looking at dating. Make that, make that the first thing you look for. Don't be like, well, he needs to be 6'5 and have a good job, and then about, about number 73 down the list, it would be cool if he went to church. Don't, don't do that. Switch that, that. switch that upside down. Put that on the top of your list. If I'm going to engage in a relationship with someone, I want us to share the most important things together. I want that to be the primary thing that we share. Let's keep going and look at this third offense that the people were having against God. This is verse 13 and 14. Get ready, okay? I understand. I get it. I've wrestled with it all week. Verse 13, this is another thing you do. You are covering the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. And you ask why? Because even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, you have acted treacherously against her. She was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. The third thing that the, the people of Israel were doing uh, was that they were divorcing their spouses, presumably to be able to marry these women from other gods. Let me start this just by, by saying, if you have experienced divorce, if you've been through divorce 
And it's something that, um, it's that, that quiet thing in you that like, you, you know we don't want to talk about it. It's painful. It's created in you this pain that goes deep, deep. We love you. We desperately want to come alongside you and walk through this part of your life that could be just put it in the dark and don't talk about it because it's so painful. We want to walk with you to be able to be be the gospel to you, to be the community with you, to love you, to to show you that, look, this, this may have happened, but God never, ever, ever gives up on you. God never says enough is enough and kicks you to the curb. Never. If your heart is broken because of this, it's something that you have dealt with. We want to go with you. We want to travel with you through this and let you know that God loves you and we love you too. We understand that there's a great brokenness that happens because of divorce and we want to be there with you and we want to, we want to be able to journey through that with you so that we can see the beautiful healing that can come in the hearts of those who have been through that. God is a God that takes ashes and turns them into something beautiful. He's someone that uh, it takes the dead and brings it back to life. But this is an issue that we face as a society on an epidemic scale. Divorce is just as bad in the church as it is outside of the church. And it is, it is so, so sad. It's so sad. And I think the problem, I've been thinking about it a lot. I'm not a marriage expert or a divorce expert, but here's what I think the problem is. I think that the world tells us that marriage is a transactional event that happens, right? It's an event where, where we get together, two people get together, and we create this transactional relationship where if you do this, and then I will do this, and then we will be able to do this to to, to each other, and we'll be able to, you'll meet this need, and I'll meet this need, and it'll be, it'll be awesome, and you know, I've even heard it, even in, in marital counseling, it's like, well, you give 100%, and you give 100%, and then everybody will be happy, yay, well, that, let me tell you something, the, the problem with that is that that is an impossible scenario, that is an impossible thing to happen, it cannot happen, because transactional relationships always break down, always. Because at one point, at some point in your life and in the life of your marriage, there will come a time when one of you cannot fulfill the transactional side that's expected of you. Now, whether that's, I lost my job, I don't know what to do, I can't provide for my family, you know, or, or I've, got, I've got major health issues and I don't know how to keep going with this. There's a number of reasons that can happen that this transactional model breaks down, but it always breaks down. As long as I am looking to have my needs met by the other person in a marriage, it will not work ever, period. End of story. Because that is not how God designed us. That's not how God designed marriage. And that's not how God designed our relationships to work. So this morning, what I want to present to you is a completely different paradigm of how we as believers should live in marriage. If you're not married, that's okay, because it works for other relationships as well. But I want to present this new idea to you that we are, we're, we are called to abandon this idea that our marriages are transactional and step into a new truth of how God created us to live in marriage. 
look at it this way. If we're looking for each other to meet our needs, we're not going to get them met. But look at it this way. If we're looking for our provision to come from our marriage, what happens if one loses their job? You're, you're disappointed, you're hurt, you're angry, whatever it is. But if we look to God for give us to provide for us in the way that only he can, we will never be disappointed. Israel was likely marrying so that they could have a better status in life. They were likely divorcing their spouses and marrying this other person so that they could get a better leg up. Look, Israel at this time, it was in a bad place because they were under uh, rule of another country. They thought they were coming back and everything was going to be awesome. But when they got back, the temple was not as good as the old temple was. And God wasn't providing for them the way that he thought that, that they thought he should. And there was a lot of disappointment. And so they were going to God and saying, God, why, aren't you just, why don't you just do this? Why don't you just make us like we used to be? So they were probably stepping outside of that God relationship in order to kind of provide for themselves what they thought God wouldn't provide for them. If we stop looking at our marriages for provision and start looking to God for provision, we will never be disappointed. What about comfort? What if we go to our spouse and say, well, I need the comfort from you that only you can provide? Well, what happens if I don't feel like comforting you right now? Well, then I'm really disappointed. But if we go to God, who is the source of all comfort, who promises that he's going to give us the Holy Spirit to be our comforter, will we ever be disappointed? No, we will not be disappointed because God does not disappoint. What about security? Well, I need my husband to walk alongside me and, or my wife to walk alongside me so she can take out that guy if he comes against me. Well, are we going to be disappointed? Yes, we're going to be disappointed, especially if you're married to me. You'd be like, oh, I'm sorry, sir. Here's, here's my wallet, you know? Um, <laughs> but what if we look to God for the source of our security? Then what? Will we be disappointed? No. We will not be disappointed. And here's the, here's the amazing thing about this one. If we look to God for our security and then we go run up against this robber and he kills me, what then? What does Paul say? To live as Christ, to die as gain. So even, even if I leave this life, I still have the security that God can provide. What about love? That's the hallmark lie. All I need is love. All you need is love. Love is all you need. Thank you, the Beatles. All you need is love, right? What if you look for your spouse to be the source of your love in your life? It fades, right? That warm, fuzzy, bubbly feeling in you, it kind of goes away, and you're like, at every marriage I've ever talked to, they, they get through the honeymoon phase, and it's like, whoa, what did I do? Wow, this is, not, this is not the same person. He doesn't even put the toilet seat down. Good grief, how are we? What if we look to our spouse as the source of our love in our life? We're gonna be disappointed. But what if we look to God, the author of love? What if we look to God who gave his son for us in a way that showed love that only God could? Will we be disappointed? No, we will never, ever be disappointed. What about esteem or respect? Well, I need to be married to this person because they've got a great job and people are going to think well of us and I'm going to be able to drive a Lexus. Yeah, that, that's great until that Lexus is 15 years old and, and you've got one donut on the side of it and you can't afford to get the bumper fixed. And then people think, wow, what's wrong with these people? But what does God say about us? God says, he's, uh, you're my child. You're, you're a joint heir 
with me. What greater esteem and respect could happen because of that than that? There's no greater thing than that. What about intimacy? Intimacy. Kids, close your ears. No, if um, intimacy is not what we like to think about in the world. Intimacy is this act of being naked and not being ashamed. That's what real intimacy is. It's being able to see the inward parts of the person that you're with. That's real intimacy. If you look only to your spouse for that, you're going to be disappointed because there's pain, there's walls, there's anger, there's lots of things that can block that intimacy. But what does it say? What, is, what about God? Well, what the heck are you talking about? God not only loves you, but he knows you as only God can. Only God knows you, the innermost parts of you that you don't even share with your spouse. Only God knows the you that you don't want people to know. Only God knows the you that you hide. Only God you knows you, you, you the part of you that will live forever. There is no greater intimacy than the one that you can have with the creator God who loves you. So what I'm suggesting here is this. Stop looking for your spouse to meet your needs. They will meet some of your needs, but stop looking them as the source of how your needs need to be met and start looking for the creator God, the one who spoke the world into existence, who sent his son to die for you so that you could live eternally with him as the source of your fulfillment, of your hope, of your life. And that will change your marriage and it will change your life so that instead of looking at this person and saying, well, they didn't do this, therefore I'm not doing this, you'll be able to start seeing them as a joint heir, a fellow believer in Christ with you who's getting, this, getting all of their needs met by the Lord and you can come together and stand side by side and walk forward for the gospel of God and say, we are his image bearers on this earth so that when people look at us, they're not seeing two, two people who squabble all the time and they're not looking for two people who are totally dependent on each other for every little thing. They'll be able to say, I see that couple and I see that God is working in their lives to fulfill them as only God can. And you can step forward and when people look at you, they will see a difference. They will see something different in your life. Not people who are striving after the next thing, but people who are striving to follow the plan and the path that God set for all of us. That is the picture of marriage that God gives us. And that's what we can strive for. Why is this important to God? Because throughout the Bible, God uses marriage as his language of describing his relationship with us. If you want to grab your Bible, turn over here to Ezekiel. I know Ezekiel, it's a weird one. Like, who, what's Ezekiel? Yeah, it's in Ezekiel chapter 16. Um, this, is a, this is a profound passage that I had never, honestly, I had never really read. Um, I mean, I had read it, but I didn't, it didn't register with me. But in Ezekiel 16, God has this beautiful picture of how he deals with Israel. In verse 6, it says, 
I passed by you and I saw you thrashing around in your blood. I'm actually going to back up here just a couple verses because I think it's important. This is God establishing Israel. It says, as for your birth, your umbilical cord wasn't cut on the day you were born and you weren't washed clean with water. You were not rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one cared enough about you to do even one of those things out of compassion for you, but you were thrown out into the open field because you were despised on the day you were born. So God is saying to Israel, look, eh, nobody wanted you. They threw you out into a field. And then in verse 6, I passed by you, and I saw you thrashing around in your blood, and I said to you as you lay in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you as you lay in your blood, live. I made you thrive like plant, plants of the field, you grew up and matured and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew, but you were stark naked. Then I passed by you and I saw you and you were indeed at the age for love. So I spread the edge of my garment over you and I covered your nakedness. I pledged myself to you, entered into a covenant with you. This is the declaration of the Lord God. And you became mine. I washed you with water, rinsed off your blood and anointed you with oil. I clothed you and embroidered cloth and provided you with fine leather sandals. I also wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with jewelry, putting bracelets on your wrists and a necklace around your neck. I put a ring in your nose, earrings on your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was made of fine linen, silk and embroidered cloth. That's a wedding dress. You, are you ate fine flour, honey, and oil. You became extremely beautiful and attained royalty. Your fame spread among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor, which I had bestowed on you. This is the declaration of the Lord God. That God just described a wedding, a wedding with the people of Israel. And that is what we represent. We, the church, are the bride of Christ. Why is marriage important to God? Because our marriages are far more than just a, a union between people that are agreeing to, to cook dinner for each other occasionally. We are a picture of what God has done for us as believers, a picture of the love that God has for the church. It's a, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. As we continue on in Malachi, I'm going to touch on this briefly because I think it's important, but verse two, uh, I mean, verse 15, um, depending on what translation you're reading, um, good luck here. When you look at these verses in a commentary, it's very interesting because um, Calvin said, nobody should probably preach this because nobody actually knows what it means. And another commentator that I read this week said, it should just say dot, 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 unintelligible. Weird, huh? The Hebrew here is very confusing. So depending on what version you're reading, um, is going to determine how this verse was interpreted for you. So look at verse 15 and 16 here. It says, didn't God make them one and give them a portion of spirit? What is the one seeking? Godly offspring. So watch yourselves carefully so that no one acts treacherously against the wife of his youth. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of armies. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously. Okay, pretty clear, right? If you read the NIV, it says God hates divorce. And the purpose of your having a relationship is so that you can have godly offspring. And I've heard that preached exactly that way with this guilt laid on like, oh, you don't have kids? Therefore, you're not fulfilling your plan for your marriage. I've heard that. Yeah, 
I've heard that a lot. I've heard it, say, it says, God hates all divorce. And then they, they went on for an hour and a half about God hating all divorce. Does God hate divorce? I believe he does because it is a brokenness. It, it hurts his people, which he loves. It hurts the, the, what God has put as an important part of our lives. Yes, but um, if you want to talk more about this, you can come talk to me afterwards. But there's really three kind of ideas of what this passage means. And without studying it, it's really hard to know what it says. And even though I studied it a lot this week, I'm still not entirely sure what exactly it says. And if some of the greatest commentators that have ever studied scripture say, maybe it should say dot, 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 who knows? Maybe don't make that the most important thing that you stand on in, in your life. It's just, I just wanted to point that out because I want you to understand how important it is for us as believers to be able to study scripture together and say, hey, I, I think this verse says this, but I'm not entirely sure. What do you think? And get wise counsel to help us understand when we don't understand things. Moving on to verse 17, he says this, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Oh boy, that hurts. I really hope that I never weary the Lord with my words. That sounds bad. It sounds really bad. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you ask, how have we wearied him? When you say, everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight, and he is delighted with them, or else, where is the God of justice? Have you ever, have you been at this point in your life where you were at, the, what, the, what Israel is saying here is, look, everybody, all these people are doing evil, and nothing bad's happened to them. Where are you, God? You look, at, you look at the news and you see this murder and you see this robbery and you see this and this and this and these people all seem to be thriving and yet here I am, I, I can't find a job. Where are you, God? That's where Israel was at this point with, with their lives. Man, that's a hard place to be in because where, where's your hope? What hope do I have? Yeah, God, my husband just walked out on me. Where are you? My wife just died. Where are you, God? These people who hate you live great lives, but, and, and I try to follow you, and, and what? Where are you, God? That is an extraordinarily painful place to be. Extraordinarily painful. But look how God, look what God says here in chapter 3. See? I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he's coming, says the Lord of armies. But who can endure all the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and like launderer's bleach. He will be like a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord as in days of old and years gone by. I will come to you in judgment and I will be ready to witness against sorcerers and adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker, the widow and the fatherless, and against those who deny justice to the resident alien. They do not fear me, says the Lord of armies, because I, the Lord, have not changed your descendants you descendants of Jacob have not been destroyed. If you're in a place in your life where you're asking where God is, I just want to tell you something. He's, he's right there and he's coming. He is coming to redeem his own. 
He is coming, and it's going to be an incredible time when we stand before the Lord. We reread this passage from Malachi, and we see all of these awful things that the people of, of Israel are doing. We're like, wow, God's just going to kick them to the curb. I know, that's got to be happening, because, I mean, God is a holy and just God, and he's got to, you know, it's, it's going to be awful. And yet, look at what he does. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm coming to redeem you, Israel. He does not get rid of them. He doesn't say, yep, you know what, guys? It's been nice knowing you. I'm going to choose somebody else. He says, no, no, no. I'm getting ready to send my messenger to you in spite of everything that, that he has done, in spite of everything that, that Israel had done, God still sent the Messiah for them. In spite of everything that I have done, God is still choosing to, to love me and redeem me. And I believe that is how we should live in light of the gospel in our marriages, and in our relationships. When we're involved in a workplace relationship and this guy is awful to me all the time, how should we, how should we be? God still loves that person. And I am put in their lives to be a picture of the grace of God to this person that hates me. It changes the dynamic of the relationship. Instead of saying, yep, you're bad, I'm good, I'm gonna get rid of you. No, no, I'm gonna be a witness to you. I'm gonna be someone who stands next to you and walks with you. And you're gonna look at me and see that there's something different about me. What about in our marriages? Instead of saying, well, you are awful and I'm not and so I'm out. That's, what if we say this? Look, God, God loved me when I was unlovable and died for me when I was still deep in my sin. So how am I going to act to my spouse? Take, your, take your, little, your diary and your journal where you write down all the wrong things that your spouse has done and close it up and throw it in the fireplace and burn it up. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love forgives all, just like God did for me. And I, it's hard for me to imagine, and I do it all the time, it's hard for me to imagine saying, God, hey, thanks for the forgiveness. Now, why didn't you do the dishes? It seems silly, right? It seems silly, but it, we do it all the time. And I'm gonna ask you, I'm gonna ask you to go to a different place in your marriage. Why? Because standing in your marriage, hand in hand, with the Lord as the center is going to change your communities. It's going to change your family. It's going to change this world because it is counter world now to stand when things get hard. It is against everything that the world says to do when things get really, really hard. But what does God say? I went there when it was hard. I picked up my cross and I walked up the hill for you, even though you didn't even know me, you didn't love me, you didn't care about me, I died for you. What if we did that for our spouses? What if your next time when you go out on a date, you guys get to talk about, you know, I was pretty awful this week and you loved me anyway. Wow. What a testimony of the grace and the mercy of God. I want to see this church a place where marriages are just glowing with the glory of God with the beauty and the grace. And when people see us, they're like, that's the kind of marriage I want. Not because we're great at serving each other. We will be great at serving each other because that's what God does. 
But because they see Jesus in us, the grace is constant, always just flowing out of us. That's what I want to see. There's an interesting passage in Ephesians here uh, that is uh, Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to put it up on the screen here, maybe, possibly. There it is. Um, This is Paul praying for his his church that he's been working with. And um, I'm going to ask you to do something this morning that's going to feel weird. Um, And that's okay. We're weird. I'm weird. I'm really weird. Um, But this is Ephesians chapter 3, and this is what Paul is praying for their spouse. I mean, this is what Paul is praying for the church, but this is what I'm going to ask you to pray for your spouse this morning, your future spouse if you're not married. Pray this for a relationship that you're challenged if you're not in a marriage relationship right now. Pray for this for your, for your father if they, if they have treated you terribly. Pray it for your kid if they've walked away from the Lord. Pray it over the people in your life that are those challenging relationship that you just don't, you don't know what to pray for. You don't even know. I mean, it's just like, I don't even know where to go anymore with it. But pray this. Pray this for the person in your life that that maybe you're harboring that that kind of like, oh, I don't want to pray anything for them because I don't like them anymore. Pray this for them. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you, according to the rich of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and the width, height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So we're going to just take a minute here. We're going to pause and give you an opportunity to pray. This passage, if you, if you want to pray for your spouse, man, uh, let me tell you, if Sherry prayed this for me every day, it would, it, oh man, it would, it would change my heart. It, it would mean more to me than anything in the world if this was her prayer for me. Because if people can grasp how great God's love for them is, it will be a life changer. It will change everything about them. So take, we're just going to take a minute, just a minute, to pray this prayer over the people that, that you want to be praying for. And then we're going to take communion. So take just a minute here and pray this.